Welcome everyone to the Metabilis 2 podcast with your hosts, Ben and David. Hooray. This is our first run with an actual podcast title. Yeah, the Metabilis 2. We have a topic tonight. How did we get into Who or what was our earliest memories of Who? Earliest Who memories, yeah. And since you're marginally older than I am, I think you probably have an earlier memory of Age Before Beauty, exactly. Well, Thankfully, due to the explosion of, of Who scholarship over the past decade and a half or so, um, I can actually pinpoint potentially down to the very minute ah. um, that I first <laughs> experienced Doctor Who. Oddly enough, I, I, can, I can too. Um, I won't, though, because that's too much. But I will, I will pin it down to a date. Okay. Um, and there are actually two dates that I want to draw your attention to. All the right. first is the 24th of January... 1970. Okay, so you were hurt with And the second is um, the uh, 27th of October, sorry, the 27th of December, I beg your pardon, of 1972. Okay, so definitely in the Pertwee years. Oh, slap bang in the middle of the, the golden era of Doctor Who, which of course is the Pertwee years. The more eagerly, the more eagle-eyed or eared among you will have already realized that the 24th of January 1970 is the, the last episode of Spearhead from Space. I would have been four years old, mm-hmm. um, and I can very clearly, and this is not one of those false memories that people are always accusing everyone of having, I can very clearly remember uh, watching the bit in Spearhead from Space where the Autons break out of the windows of the department store um, where they are lurking as department store store mannequins. And the reason why I can remember that so clearly is I can remember my mother rushing in horror to the television set and turning it off because it was deemed to be too frightening for a Mm four-year-old. And I actually remember more her horror because, you know, obviously when you're four years old, your mother is kind of a big, a big, your mother's always a big thing in your life. But anyway, when you're four, particularly big, um, mm-hmm. I remember her horror rather than the actual episode itself. Mm-hmm. So that is the very first time that I experienced Who. Um, I also then remember that one of my uh, best friends, uh, um, James Bennett, um, was allowed to watch Doctor Who and I wasn't. So I can remember also a lot of nagging and pleading um, that I had friends who were allowed to watch this scary show that I was not allowed to watch. And I think eventually then my parents caved in because, and this has confused me for many years, my actual memory of the, the first time I watched a full Doctor Who story is, as I previously said, uh, after Christmas uh, on the 27th of December 1972, when the BBC broadcast the omnibus edition. It's all run together into one kind of movie-length show of Mm -hmm. The Sea Devils. Ah. Now, this has always confused me because for many years, again, before the advent of of Who Scholarship, I know that I watched The Sea Devils, but I didn't watch 
I don't remember seeing anything else in the Sea Devil season. So I didn't see the Time Monster. I didn't see the Mutants, etc., etc., etc. That season remained a season that, that I only really experienced in novel form when they finally released the novels, mm-hmm. those novelizations of those stories. And even more recently, you know, in, in video or DVD form. Mm-hmm. And that always confused me because I knew, I knew that I'd seen the Sea Devils live on television. Mm-hmm. And then I knew that the next who series that I saw was The Three Doctors. Because mm-hmm. again, I can remember being very confused and having my parents explain to me that the other doctors who were turning up were doctors who used to be the doctor before the doctor. It's like, what? I don't understand. Right. So, but then I finally realized that actually what I'd seen was the omnibus edition of The Sea Devils. And yeah. that's the very first who that I saw. And that makes, of course, the Pertwee era. Um, Your first doctor. My first doctor. So the last season with... Um, the delightful Joe Grant, um, and then of course you bang straight into the, the great partnership of, of Pertwee and Sladen, and then you slam straight into the into the amazing first four seasons or so of, of Tom Baker, and, and that is my Who Golden Age. So that's me. Okay. Well, I came into it almost a decade later in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, so Minneapolis-St. Paul area, when KTCA, the local public broadcasting service, began broadcasting Doctor Who at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, an episode at a time. And so early 1982, probably late 1981, it started appearing on the evening lineup. And it was probably after my siblings were done watching either Sesame Street or Reading Rainbow or some of those shows at the time. Did they have Reading Rainbow back then as well? They had it back in the 80s. I don't know if it was early. It probably wasn't that early. Did it have what's his name on it? LeVar Burton. Yeah. Geordie LaForge. Yeah. 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 LeVar was from the beginning of it. But I think that Reading Rainbow came in much later. Hmm. Did not know that. But so there was, you know, they had... They had the evening lineup, and it was usually like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and Sesame Street, and then probably something geared towards older children. And then at 5 o'clock, they had Doctor Who come on for a half hour before probably the nightly business report or something like that at 5.30. But my probably my earliest memory is in May of 1982, and I would have been 12 years old at the time, with... Uh, the Douglas Adams story, the Pirate Planet, and I really was that the very first Doctor Who you ever no, saw. No, I'm sure I saw earlier Doctor Who, but the first Doctor, but this first one you can the remember, the first Doctor Who that it was appointment viewing for me was right, right. probably the Pirate Planet in May of 1982 that I remember distinctly seeing, and it what the scene that kind of is etched in my mind is uh, oddly enough is the the perpetual tunnel that they have going into the captain's ship for some reason that really that is what i remember but i think what hooked me again i mentioned this before is you know it had a star wars type laser battle so there was they were shooting (laughs) they were shooting lasers between the guards and the mentiads were they mentiads 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 yeah by the end of the year, by let's see, by the time school started in September, we had already gone through Legopolis. And so after that, KTCA right. repeated Tom Baker for the next two two years, I think, or so. Oh, so they just circled all the way back to Robot again. Yeah, that's what they did. They just repeated with Robot right after Legopolis. 
So it got a fresh viewing. And then really? so by the time September of 1982 came along, I was very into the show. And what I really, really latched on to was the really? Key to Time series, which hooked me in. And then the early, early Hinchcliffe years, because with, uh, I guess, season 18 with Tom, Tom's departure and stuff, that was really confusing for me. And, and then looping back to Robot, mm. sort of like, oh, we're reset. You know, it's very interesting. Really, really like Sarah Jane. And I really like that time team of Sarah and Harry. So from Robot through Terror of the Zygons, really, really enjoyed that. And KTCA kind of varied the order of the stories. So for... That's confusing. In, <laughs> When I was watching it, the order was like skip things. So we have we would have Revenge of the Cybermen before Genesis of the Daleks. So we went from we went from Robot to Ark to Santarn Experiment to Revenge of the Cybermen back to Genesis of the Daleks, then to Terror of the Zygons, then Pyramid of Mars. It was really jumbled up at that at that time. Does did, does anyone know why they did that, or were they just like what? The whatever VHS cassette they have, you to know, have, it have, could have to have to it hand. could have been from, I think it was Lionheart distribution at the time, or you know, it could have been just the order that they were put in under contract. I don't, I don't know, but it's just sort of like that really? is the order that they were shown in the Twin Cities. Interesting. Yep. So the, the second run of Tom, when that came around, we switched from Legopolis Castor Velva, and then after Time Flight. We looped back over to Robot, and by then, it had switched to, um, by the time, in 83, this was hard. I had to convince my parents to let me stay up late on Friday nights, because after Legopolis in May of yeah. 1983, that evening, they switched to the Davison years at 11.30 at night. So they, they really switched it from a kid's show to an adult show in 83. Wow. And then I think when the anniversary huh. story came on in um, huh. uh, November of uh, 1983, that was uh, Channel Channel Two, a PBS pledge break. They they milked that for all it was worth. But we re I remember us either watching it or recording it, definitely watching right. it live and being severely annoyed by pledge breaks. But but you know that 83 was yeah. probably. 83, 84, probably through uh, 85, 86 time frame was probably my peak early Who years. So four years of really intense Doctor Who. And at the same time, the, the broadcaster had a low-powered uh, UHF station that they started broadcasting early Hartnell and Patrick Troughton stories. So really, I mean, your experience in mm -hmm. the Twin Cities in the in the eighties of who it really was like a wibbly yep. wobbly timey wimey show. It's like, and then we're back to the beginning again, and here's another thing. Very, and, very disorganized. I mean, we know obviously that one of the glories of who is that it has no actual continuity that you can mm -hmm. really look at, apart, of course, unless unless you're Stephen Moffat and you want to retcon a continuity into the, into the whole thing. But um, for yeah, for that that experience is really just kind of like, and here's another thing, and here's another thing. Mm -hmm. That's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and it's we would have a current. Well, we we would be on two different time tracks in a Twin City. So we'd have um, towards the end of the '80s, it would be on Friday and Saturday night. So on Friday nights, we would have one doctor. On Saturday night, we'd have another doctor. Yeah. 
Oh, they just run them back to back. R- run it all, edited back into one mm-hmm. uh, movie format. Oh, those are the ones that everyone talks about having that famous introduction that everyone loves by some old man. Uh... Those were actually earlier. Um, the, old, the Howard De Silva the old man. introduction. Okay, yeah, right. Howard De Silva. Yeah, who really didn't understand the show or something. Just was you know, <laughs> you know who they should have got instead. They should have got um, um, oh god, who's that other like weird like he's not an American, he's not an Englishman, old man. Um, must be theater guy. They should have got him to do it instead. Alistair Cook. Alistair Cook. Yeah, because the weird mm-hmm. thing about Alistair Cook is that of course in America everyone thinks he's English. Um, mm-hmm. But then, of course, in Britain, when he had his his radio show in Britain, everyone thought he was American. So yeah, he's, letter from America. He's neither of the two. Anyway, Howard DeSilva, mm-hmm. poor man. Yeah. Well, yeah, he was he was definitely an American broadcaster, and I think I only heard one of Howard DeSilva's introductions because that was for a commercial television package, oh, rather than the I PBS see. package. And the that was the first venture of Tom Baker's stories, like in 78 and 79, and some of the commercial stations, and I think one of the commercial television stations in the Twin Cities picked it up, but it wasn't long-lasting, right. but for that commercial broadcast, right, they, right. they had an introduction. Well, here's a, here's a funny little, a little, a little anecdote that will amuse you or bore you, I have no idea. Anyway, uh, so you say <laughs> that your first kind of strong memory of, um, of who was the pirate planet Mm-hmm. and the Mentiads and the other people like duking it out um, and that you had you were recording that on VHS cassette in the 80s yeah in, um, after that time but yeah yeah I was um, uh, I had joined the Doctor Who Appreciation Society um, and I was quite an early member actually in the in the mid in the mid 70s mm-hmm. um, I had gone on a trip I think with my dad to the Science Museum in Kensington London, South Kensington, and my father was an architect, and he had been one of the designers of Imperial College London, which is the kind of campus, college campus that is next door to the Science Museum. So having looked around the Science Museum, he then wanted to go and like check out some of his buildings. So we went to Imperial College, and by some weird coincidence, that was exactly the same day that the Doctor Who Appreciation Society were having their first convention it was like the first Doctor Who convention ever held oh wow um and I was really excited and there were all these like Doctor Who people wandering around so I was allowed my dad said well you you should pick up like a you know an application form to Mm -hmm. and they were like super keen that I should join because I was young and they were like you know creepy um men in their 20s um (laughs) who were desperate for like a young child to join them I don't know why (laughs) legitimacy Uh, (laughs) exactly exactly there are children like it as well uh, so yeah, I joined Doctor Who Appreciation Society, and one of the services that you could get from Panopticon, which was their um, uh, newsletter. No, no, hang on. The convention was called Panopticon. What was the newsletter called? Oh, I had some stupid like Doctor Who fan name. Anyway, um, but one of the services that you could get from that by sending them money is you send them money, and then they would send you a little packet of photographs mm-hmm. that someone had taken of a Doctor Who series. And the first pack of photographs I ever sent off to get from the Doctor Who Appreciation Society was a set of quite blurry colour photographs of someone taking pictures of a television screen that was showing the pirate planet. So this is off the air. Off air air images. And of course, you know, in the 1970s, when, you know, only people like um, 
uh, you know, Ringo Starr had video recorders. Right. Um, that was the only way that you could that you could relive stuff, mm-hmm. and especially since you know the Pirate Planet, I believe, still is an unnovelized uh, Doctor Who, Doctor Who uh, story because it was written by Douglas Adams before they released the the the, the key to time on VHS and whenever it was mm-hmm. in the 90s. That was the only way that you could experience it. So that's my little Doctor Who Pirate Planet anecdote. Huh. I wasn't a very good member of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. I didn't really ever go to a convention. I'm not, not really a convention-going kind of person. Um, but I did send off quite a lot of the booklets, and I had a full run of their newsletters, which I put on eBay like a few years ago and sold for money. Mm-hmm. Was the Pirate Planet choice to fill gap in the Target novels? or No, I, I was just really interested to be able to relive an episode that I actually quite enjoyed. I, I remember not liking the captain very much. I thought he was, uh, he was overacted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did like the laser space battles. And mm-hmm. I did like, you know, Mentiads versus the black clad, you know, guards or whatever they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very keen on Mary, Mary Tam. Um, so those are all good reasons to get photographs of that particular. But again, I think I think one of the problems was, of course, uh, this being the BBC, they never repeated shows. Right. So basically, you, they showed the Pirate Planet, and then mm-hmm. they would never, ever show it again. Yeah, so in America, why we grew up on Tom is there's this constant, endless repeats of Tom, and sort of like yeah. that was Doctor Who for us, and at least the early 80s until some of the early Davison ones come trickling in. And it wasn't until Tom kind of established the fandom that Pertwee and other, you know, Pertwee, Hartnell, and Troughton stories started getting repeated. And they were so so few and far between and spotty. So they would, yeah. anything incomplete, obviously, they wouldn't broadcast. So we'd have huge gaps in the storytelling. Well, apart from, you know, some sporadic repeats and, of course, these ominous editions that they did, I think of the, um, I think they, they did one of the Sea Devils, I think there was one of the Green Death, um, I know there was one of Genesis of the Daleks. They, the BBC never repeated who, and the first time they ever repeated it, you know, in episodic fashion was the famous Five Faces of Doctor Who right. in the anniversary year. And I think it, what it shows, it's a very interesting ch- uh, cultural change. If you care to, I was an obsessive reader of the Radio Times, which, of course, was the state-run media's listings magazine, which would tell you everything that was going to be on the BBC, BBC One, BBC Two, uh, Radios One, Two, Three, and Four each week. And I was obsessed. I, I loved that. I, every week I'd read the Radio Times from, top, from cover to cover. And I, I still would do that if they still published it properly, which, mm-hmm. of course, they don't. But in the letters page, which I used to enjoy a lot, people were always complaining about repeats in it because, you know, the BBC is publicly funded. There was a very strong cultural mm-hmm. disdain for, well, we're paying for this thing and we want new stuff every night. And mm-hmm. if you just show us the same thing, you're wasting our money. So stop doing it. So the, the BBC was really pulled over the coals every time it re-showed something again. Well, there's a Monty Python skit or several Monty Python skits about bloody repeats. Exactly. And that's and that's not that's not just a skit. That was really that was the attitude of the nation. Now, of course, nowadays, you know, we sh- they show the same thing over and over and over again on any number of different media that you can store go. So that's a very interesting kind of cultural shift in people's attitude to media. But to go back to my actually the point I was I was I was going to make earlier on, one of the problems about these you know these telesnaps, and I'm going to call them telesnaps, that I received from some you know crazy you know it was probably I don't know it was probably someone had taken them um, from the pirate planet, is that is that they they really weren't of the best bits of the pirate planet 
because quite obviously, because basically there was this guy and he had a camera and he was watching the Pirate Planet, he was watching it for the first and only time as well. Um, so he was basically right. putting his camera down and watching the good bits and then suddenly remembering, oh, I should, should be taking some pictures and picking, <laughs> picking his camera up again and taking a picture of like the duller bits. So you didn't get, there were none, of, mm-hmm. I wish I still had that set, though I probably got them back in Britain actually. But they, were, they, were, they weren't a very satisfying, <laughs> they weren't a very satisfying <laughs> record of the show because obviously the guy who was taking the pictures, and I think he probably was a male, was mm-hmm. as into it as I was and didn't want to miss any of it by taking a picture. Yeah, seeing those pictures now would be a very interesting snapshot of fandom in the late 70s of Doctor Who. I should dig those out. I should I should see if I, see if I could find those. That, that would be interesting to see. I bet I've got them somewhere in a box um, back, in, back in the UK. Yeah, so the, in North America, it was the television show. There wasn't really anything. I mean, to join the Doctor Who Appreciation Society was expensive. To get the Doctor Who, the Marvel Doctor Who Weekly or Doctor Who Monthly, by the time I think Davison came out, yeah. was it was it was it was it was out of my price range as a kid. Were they were they generally way. available in comic shops? I mean, they, presumably they weren't on the newsstands. You had to go yeah, to like the, you know, yeah, the comic, um, yeah, the same place dungeon you, or somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, in where I would have bought things would be at Shinders. When they had everything at Shinders, and yeah, it went out of business. And oh, that's uh, a shame early 2000s i think but yeah so that that's where i bought all my dungeons and dragons role-playing books and other role-playing games and i got the doctor who role-playing game from faza in the 80s to to pony up the either five or six bucks or whatever it was for doctor who monthly every month or doctor who weekly every week it was out of out of my price range and then so i i think the earliest doctor who monthly that i have is the issue with the transparent dalek from revelations of the dalek oh yeah i remember that cover yeah yeah and so and i by the time colin baker had rolled rolled on i was starting to lose interest in the series because it just wasn't wasn't matching up to my golden years of Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. williams and hinchcliffe eras yeah i actually i bought doctor who magazine when it first came out, but then I stopped buying it because it became really ugly looking. And I remember not liking it because it kind of just looked bad. And I start, actually only started buying it again in the early 1990s during the wilderness years to kind of get the fix that I was looking for for Doctor oh, Who. You subscribe now, don't you? I do. Yeah. Well, yes. No, I, I, I don't subscribe because I change. Uh, you know, Sometimes I'm in Britain and it would really mm-hmm. irritate me to have to buy one on the newsstand in Britain and then also have one that's being sent to me in America. That would irritate me. So no, I, I buy it monthly from uh, a, an online uh, Doctor Who selling place. Who, nah, who North America. They're brilliant. They always have the, mm-hmm. they always have the good stuff. Um, so I, mean, ba- I mean, I was, again, and I wasn't, uh, I think I did the same financial analysis that you were doing in the 80s is that you know i had a certain amount of money to spend on magazines and i wasn't going to spend it on doctor who magazine i was spending it on um 2000 ad which i bought each week um mm-hmm. and then various modeling magazines um you know, you know model airplane magazines i used to buy those mm-hmm. yeah i spent it mostly on uh, role-playing games and dates so that was dates yeah Wow. Well, you were in a boarding school. Oh, so, so like the, the, the squashy things you get in Egypt no, from trees. Uh, uh, <laughs> <dates>. Girlfriends. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was a boarding school. I did, yeah, well, all, all the dates were there already. It's like, you have to try. They're just there. Do you want to go out with me? No. All right. I'll just ask the next person then. <laughs> 
So no, that was it's so, like a copy of 2018. And then let's see, I by the time I started college, it had been canceled, and I really just didn't get back into fandom with McCoy. I mean, I know some people that was their yeah. You know, Doctor Who is back. It's it's the the quality's back. It's, the it's moody. Part, it's back. Right. Right. And then that propelled them into the Virgin New Adventures and stuff. For right. me, it was just sort of like, mm. and then I tried after the New Adventures had come up. I think that we had the Missing Adventures, and I tried to pick up some of them, and I picked up the English Way of Death, and I just couldn't get into it at all. And so, yeah, I never really liked Roberts's writing. Actually, everyone seems to. Really rate him. But I, I did pick not, up the big yeah. Finnish uh, dramatizations of the English Way of Death, and uh, oh, are they good. They're they're listenable, but it just it didn't hook me. Yeah. It was really nice hearing Tom again. It was really nice hearing yeah. uh, Lala Ward. It it just Lala. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I am um, because uh, again, I, mean, I think we talked about this last week, or is it next week, depending on when and how we release these. I was at a boarding school, so it was very hard for me to watch Doctor Who when they moved it to the evenings. Um, when I was having was I when I was working, I was also quite nonplussed to discover that that there were actually very few people at my school who wanted to watch Doctor Who. That was like, oh, well, why is no one watching the most awesome mm-hmm. show ever? So that was kind of like, well, maybe I should start watching it then. I can certainly remember when I was at college not watching it because really only the kind of geological style nerds would watch Doctor Who and I <laughs> didn't really want to be associated with them. So that uh, was... Even though, and this is, this is you know, even though um, Russell T. Davis was, was of course, had gone mm-hmm. to my college at Worcester. I only missed him right. by a year. And the various other Doctor Who luminaries are associated with my college as well. Um, I can't remember his name now. Who's the... The Doctor Who writer that everyone loves. So he wrote Dalek. Oh, Rob it? Sherman. Rob Sherman. Yeah, Rob Sherman was big friends with a boy, a man, a, a student called Owen Bywater, who was the big Doctor Who fan at Worcester. So Rob Sherman would I would have been able to spend time with Rob Sherman because no doubt he would have dropped round to see Owen a few times. But again, I didn't want to be associated with with, with people like that. Um, so yeah, I basically stopped watching it from kind of late. Uh, I can remember seeing the caves of Androzani and then really ex- being really excited to watch the Twin Dilemma after that had finished, and then thinking this is just rubbish. I'm not watching this anymore, and I, then I just really mm-hmm. stopped watching it. So that Colin Baker was when you shut off, pretty much, yeah. And it was, you know, it's it's obviously it's those kind of late teenage years when you, everyone says they stopped doing what they were doing because. It became uncool and girls didn't like it. Or at least the girls that I liked didn't like it. There are girls who did like it, but I, they weren't they weren't presenting themselves to me, so sadly. <laughs> girls. Actually, it wasn't until RTE brought it back then there was a serious influx of women into fandom. I mean, there, there, there definitely is the occasional woman who was into a girl at the time was interested in Doctor Who, but generally it was seen as a boy, boy's show. Boy's show, man, man show. It's a very manly, very manly show. Is do you think our introduction of Hoofs, yours being Pertwee, mine being Tom Baker, really shades our appreciation of well, it's not really new Who anymore, but twenty first century Who. I think it does. I think it's interesting. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, it, it was fashionable for a while in fandom, so I understand to kind of bash the Pertwee years, and obviously, you know, they are as uh, variable 
I think, as contemporary Who is in terms of nonsense versus non-nonsense. You know, they have a very charismatic actor. I think the Pertwee Us are probably the most consistent in tone. They, they, they are. They, they are. And, and even even the dogs of the Pertwee Years, so things like, uh, you know, Time Monster or Colony in Space or I can't think of any other bad ones. And, and they, even those aren't bad, you know. I mean, I mean, I guess I'm super biased, but mm-hmm. I mean, the Time Monster is amazing. And the Colony in the Space is by Malcolm Hogg. So, like, there's nothing to complain about there. Mm-hmm. And it's got that woman from Crossroads on it as well. Oh, not Crossroads, I'm sorry, uh, Coronation Street. But I think, I think what is interesting, or not, well, what's interesting in terms of this discussion is that the, the Hinchcliffe years uh, for Baker really were the one of the top periods of the show in terms of, you know, consistent, strong storytelling, consistent high production values or high, uh, high, as high as they could get them production values. And also, you know, really frightening mm-hmm. and engaging stories. And that was, you know, that was mm-hmm. slap bang in the middle of my kind of, you know, this is when I was really, really into the show. Right. I mean, I have to find someone younger than me, you know, who first experienced who, I don't know, in the Colin Baker years or so and see whether they would have the same opinion. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, my son had uh, was exposed to the full range of classic Who before the new series returned, and he turns 18 or later this year, oh. so he had a very different experience of Doctor Who than, say, someone else his age who would have been hooked on Who in 2005 when it was returned. He had already seen the whole run of Doctor Who before it had returned or what was available on Dad's VHS collection. And he gravitated to Patrick Troughton and Colin Baker. So he really likes Colin Baker. Right, right. And first exposure. So having the whole 63 to 89 exposure of Doctor Who, he really liked mm-hmm. Colin Baker. And I didn't, my VHS collection did not have Trial of the Time Lord. It just had, um, let me think back. I didn't have Twin Dilemma either. So I had right. Venge- Vengeance on Varos, Attack of the Cybermen, yeah. Mark of the Rani. And uh, Revelation of the Daleks. So that was his exposure to Colin Baker, and he really liked it. Now, later, later, definitely, he was able to see the Trial of the Time Lord and those other things. Yeah, but. yeah. Well, I have, I have a strong memory, and I actually have some photographs that, that I, you know, that I took at the time because it was so funny. I, I remember my two kids, who are roughly the same ages as yours, actually. Um, yes. For some reason, we all, we all started watching the Keys of Marinus. <laughs> Which is, you know, <laughs> the best for the best, even through the best glasses is like it's not it's not like Doctor Who's greatest greatest mm-hmm. hour, but they and, I, and they must have been like five and eight or something, and mm-hmm. they were absolutely gripped by it, and that's why I, I took photographs of them because they were basically they were on the sofa, they were both clutching cushions to their chests in fear. And they were, eyes were just fixed on the screen as they watched the Keys of Mariners. So, I mean, I think a lot of this in some ways is to do with being a kid. Excellent. Um, and, you know, whatever you show a kid at a certain age is going to be awesome. Because kids mm-hmm. talk about, you know, that, you know, the willing suspension of disbelief. You know, everything is magical when you're at a certain age. Um, you know, even if it's Billy Hartnell wandering right. around a different set each yeah. week talking about some keys. So I tried to interest my daughter, who's younger than my son by three years and she just couldn't ever really get interested in it. and she's seen quite a few Doctor Who's and if I say well what story do you want to see she'll oh the one with 
giant robot in it. <laughs> or none of them. None of them. But, you know, when, like when the moon base came out on DVD and started like, hey, let's watch the moon base. And she humored dad and, you know, we sat down and watched it. But I think that was the last one that we ever sat, sat down. And now that she's right, a teenager right. going off to high school this fall, that she is not not interested in all in watching yeah. Doctor Who. Well, I think I think mine have an appreciation of it being a good show. I mean, they've, and I think it's true that your younger daughter, I mean, she's never rejected it as being like, this is rubbish. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to let it darken my door ever again. It's just a show she doesn't choose to watch. And there's plenty of shows that we know are good, but we just, we just don't choose to watch them. Yeah, it's it's either too scary for her or really slow and boring. Yeah, and I, so I think I think my kids appreciate that it's an awesome show. Um, I think one of, again, and maybe we can touch on this in, in subsequent episodes of, 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 of The Metabolist too, they both firmly stopped watching New Who when David Tennant left. They watched one season of Matt Smith and then it just we don't understand what's going on. We don't like the writing. We don't like the stories. Mm-hmm. We're not watching it anymore. Which is really interesting because of course if, you know the accepted wisdom is that you know the fez bearing Matt Smith was what exploded Who onto the American market and got all the you know the fez wearing girls in their bow ties to come to all the conventions. It probably did, but they didn't have an English parent either, so that's true. Yeah, because they can they can get their fix of a of a Harry Potter style accent whenever they want <laughs> by just asking me a question right. and me so answering it. It just you know the, the show definitely did change in tone with the switch from RTD and Moffat. So oh, yeah, both yeah. both an actor and in story style story telling. type. Yep, and if yep. and if they were big onto Tenant, it did take a bit of a adaptation to switch yeah. over to the style of Smith and, and they were not they were not willing to make that make and, that jump and yeah. I doubt they would do with Capaldi now if we have a different doctor with Chibnall who's Chibnall either takes it in a different direction who knows also I'm, I'm hoping for a turn of the sexy cyber woman there should be more <laughs> more sexy cyber ladies I, I turning up just randomly I think the rumor is that there is going to be a cyber woman as a companion for the first sexy season. cyber lady. Yeah, in in the in cyber woman get get up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she has to be a sexy one. She can't just be like a regular woman. Mm-hmm. That that would be completely no. I mean, I can't. I mean, why would the cyberman just convert a woman and make it just look like just someone normal? They, of course, they'd make them sexy. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> Well, because they have the cyber technology. They would have to, to to sexify this woman one hundred percent. Well, yeah. I mean that there that was go. one of the, that was one of the concerns of Chibnall becoming showrunner and sort of like, well, he he wrote Cyberwoman, and then the retort is, well, did he have much say over the costume? So, yeah, I don't, yeah, that that is true. That is true. Poor Chibnall. I don't yeah. know if he was the executive pro- or producer at the time, or if that was all RTD's doing or yeah. whatnot. But some someone sort of said, eh, no. <laughs> I will say my kids consistently, even as they were moving away from watching um, Matt Smith, were consistent fans of the Sarah Jane Adventures um, when we watched those to the very sad end. Mm-hmm. Well, those. I think the Sarah, Sarah Jane Adventures, at least for me, of the ones I saw, really felt like 1970s Doctor Who yeah, more than 21st century Doctor Who ever did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was just because we had a familiar face with Sarah Jane or just the type of storytelling, which almost every story had a cliffhanger. Yep. Maybe the peril was less perilous. Perilous. Or less confusing, maybe. I mean, that's what's. Or maybe, yeah, maybe the stories were more simpler. straightforward, linear. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
But yeah, I I did enjoy the Sarah Jane Adventures. As did I. So it's yeah, it's unfortunate that we lost so many companions from the 1970s. Ugh, awful. Yeah, so too many, too many, terrible. So especially yeah. Liz Liz Slayton. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you have a favorite story from your golden age? Uh, it's got to be the Green Death every time, the one with the maggots. So the is that one, one that you... with the maggots? Is that one that you'd put on just for nostalgia reasons, or I'd put just... it on for every reason. Okay. Yes, it's just the greatest. It's the greatest story ever told. It is. It's great. You know, it's offensive to Welsh people. It's got giant maggots in it, and it has a giant <laughs> fly at the end. It has Jerome Willis, who is the uncle of a very good friend of mine. He's sadly now dead, of course, um, Jerome. But anyway, who's like the most awesome character actor ever to come out of Britain. Um, <laughs> it's got, you know, it's got Nicholas Courtney, and it's got John mm-hmm. Levine, and it's got everyone dressing up in costumes, and... Mm-hmm. It's, it's eco-friendly, you know, it's about like how we're wrecking the planet and Boss is just like the bossest computer ever. John Pertwee and Drag. And John Pertwee and Drag. Undercover uh, Mike Yates. Undercover Mike Yates. It's got Christopher Eccleston in it, basically, because that's, um, that's what Professor Jones, he looks like Christopher Eccleston. Professor Jones looks like <laughs> Christopher Eccleston, so it's got some timey-wimey stuff in there. And the ending is so sad, you know, when Joe goes off with, with, mm-hmm. with Professor Jones. And, um, yeah, it's, it's all right there. The only fault that I have with The Green Death is that the brigadier drives a Mercedes. You think that's not in character? He should be driving a... He should be... I mean, he drives a convertible, absolutely. He does not drive a convertible Mercedes. He drives a Triumph Stag. Um, okay. And I don't know why they didn't hire a Triumph Stag, which was, you know, which would have been the perfect leisure car for the brigadier. And they hired a Mercedes instead. That was wrong. That's the only thing that's mm-hmm. wrong with it. You don't think that was Nick Courtney's uh, own private vehicle that he drove down in? You think he had a Mercedes in the mid-70s? Do you think he was early enough? Uh, oh, definitely. Off of Doctor Who? Definitely. You think so? On BBC salary at the, can- the canteen? <laughs> anyway, I, the, the, I mean, no, there's no way the Brigadier would have driven a German car. Uh, he would have driven right. a British car, and he would have driven a Triumph, and it would have been a Triumph stack. Well, maybe he, picked it up when he, maybe he picked it up when he was visits him to Geneva. That's a good point. He doesn't want to stand out when he goes when he drives to mm-hmm. Geneva. Yeah, yeah. It takes a ferry across. Takes a ferry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It should have had it was, was a Jensen Interceptor actually, um, but which was the greatest <laughs> car of the seventies in my opinion. But anyway, yeah. So that's what's wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Um, have, we, have, I, have, we, have I got time to ask you what your favorite show is from from the your old golden era? Oh, certainly. I really like that first season, season 12, was it, of Tom Baker? And I latched on to Terror of the Zygons, which, are, again, was at beginning of beginning of season mm-hmm. 13. But I think for me, what I really like about Doctor Who is execution of the idea. So Terror of the Zygons is kind of the final story with really the unit family mm-hmm. and Tom Baker. Arguably, it could be a Pertwee story, but I really like the execution of the story of interesting new monster. Uh, we have unit trying to play a role. I like the setting. One of the things I really liked about Doctor Who or still like about Doctor Who compared to like Star Trek in the 60s is when they got off the soundstage. Yes. So they were out in an English village or well, Scottish, village. Scottish village in quotes. <laughs> and so I really liked that time era. I really liked Ark in Space. I really liked Genesis of the Daleks. But I think if I had to choose 
one from that era, it'd probably be Terror of the Saigons, yeah. maybe Arkham Space, Pyramids of Mars. I like that early Hinchcliffe era, but then if I had to go a little bit further back, I really liked like the Androids of Tara. I really liked the Power of Crow. Both right. both of them are location type pieces, and. Doctor Who for me is really kind of a jumble of that Tom Baker. I think that's interesting, yeah, because it, you don't have that linear that linear thing that that, that mm-hmm. I do, and you 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 were able to watch them after a certain period of time. You were able to watch them over and over again. I mean, I can remember one of the things that I used to do is, and I did this for both Ark in Space and Terror of the Zygons, is that I would make Lego models of the model work that I really enjoyed in the show. Yeah. So I remember making a space station Nerva out of Lego, you know, quickly because I wanted I, I, I wanted to remember it because I knew I'd never see it again. And I can remember being very proud of the, of the of, I made a Zygon spacecraft um, ah, again from memory because I can, I got those black Lego bricks. Exactly. I, I think, I think it was red. <laughs> I seem to remember it was red. My, um, my, well, my Zygon spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Anyway, because that was the way that I was able to cement how awesome I thought these models were, well, you know, how these real things that I'd seen were um, by building them out of Lego. Yeah, it's kind of a, it really is a shame that the kids of the 1970s weren't able to see at least one repeat, you know, like yeah. during this, during the summer, okay, we're going to repeat the last season of Doctor Who or something yeah. like that. Well, as I think I've said before, over the summer, they showed a Star Trek, you know, which mm-hmm. was a pretty piss poor um, uh, sub- substitute. But if yeah. they'd shown repeats, people would, would have just complained. They would have been like, right. more repeats, Blah. Well. Bastards. And anyway, Mary Whitehouse. I blame it all on my Mary Whitehouse. It's her fault. It's and then so, once the show was canceled, well, actually, since since McCoy, well, since the Colin Baker years, and then McCoy losing interest and then going mm. off to college, for me, it wasn't until probably getting married in the mid-90s right. that I had time on my hands, so to speak, that I would, well, my, my wife was busy in graduate school. Mm. She was studying, so I would go over to Best Buy and pick up a VHS of a Doctor right. Who that I right. vaguely remember right. and watch it that over the you know, course of the evening while she was taking a night class or working on a paper or something like that. So yeah. that it was the VHS yeah. that kind of rekindled. Well, again, I mean, I think we can probably talk about this on another on another um, Metabilis, the Metabilis 2 podcast, but the thing that kept me interested in who consistently were the novelizations. And I would re- I reread those over and over and over again, and I drew the covers over and over, and you know, those, those Chris Archelios covers, I drew those over and over again. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I even when I wasn't watching it on the TV, I was kind of replaying. I was still collecting the novelizations and they, they and mm-hmm. i think when you talk to british who fans certainly of my generation those terence dicks malcolm hulk ian martyr etc mm-hmm. novelizations are absolutely one of the main uh, table legs of what's that a word table, is that thing you say mm-hmm. anyway one of the main you know yeah anchor points of of who uh, those no, uh, those target novelizations mm-hmm. the target novelizations were I debuted at my library about the same time in the early 80s that the, the show started appearing on television. So my local library and picked them up and um, I remember reading them and they they weren't the target novelizations. There was a 10, um, I think Pinnacle had done a smattering of titles either from the early Hinchcliffe years and then from the late Pertwee 
Era. Yeah, and that there's Harlan Ellison's intro, Harlan Ellison introductions. Yeah, yeah. And there was one um, Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon that had an Ogron on the cover, I think, with a unit spaceship. Which a unit I, spaceship, yeah, extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary stuff. So you couldn't make it up. But I remember on going on a camping trip once and taking Doctor Who novelizations on with me, and one of them was the Planet of the Spiders, and that just was really cool what reading the planet of spiders because they never had seen the story yet and it's just like whoa there's a doctor that existed before yeah, i think yeah. that was the thing that really opened my eyes that there were doctors before tom baker because even with some of the other stories it's just it was tom baker as the doctor i didn't picture the other doctors in those stories um but i mean you know they were they also retconned as well those books i mean i can i, I still in my mind when i replay mm-hmm. terror of the ortons when the master um tries to blow up the doctor in his unit lab in the book he uses a sontaran mm-hmm. fragmentation grenade and they have a little discussion about sontaran fragmentation grenades and how you know very explosive they are of course they didn't do that in the tv show because they hadn't invented sontarans at that point I still think of that bomb that the master uses when I watch it on DVD. And right. of course, I don't really read the book anymore. I should. I'm, all my books are, are back in Britain still. Uh, I think I think of that as being a Sontaran weapon that's being used, even though they mm-hmm. don't mention it. So it just ties everything together. It does in a beautiful <laughs> way. All right. That was a good chat. I would defy anyone not to enjoy listening to that. <laughs> so until <laughs> next week. Good night, everybody. And good night. Thank you.